Okay, welcome to Atomic and Nuclear Phenomena. So we're going to get right into it. So when light of a sufficiently high frequency, so like blue to UV light, is incident on a metal in a vacuum, the metal atoms emit electrons, and this is known as the photoelectric effect. Electrons liberated from the metal by the photoelectric effect will produce a net charge flow per unit time or current. So provided that the light beam's frequency is above the threshold frequency of the metal, light beams of greater intensity produce larger current in this way. The higher the intensity of the light beam, the greater the number of photons per unit time that fall on an electrode, producing a greater number of electrons per unit time liberated from the metal. When the light's frequency is above the threshold frequency, the magnitude of the resulting current is directly proportional to the intensity and amplitude of the light beam. The minimum frequency of light that causes ejection of electrons is known as the threshold frequency, so F sub t. It depends on the type of metal being exposed to the radiation. The photoelectric effect is an all-or-nothing response, so if the frequency of the incident photon is less than the threshold frequency, then no electron will be ejected because the photons do not have sufficient energy to dislodge the electron from its atom. But if the frequency of the incident photon is greater than the threshold frequency, then an electron will be ejected, and the maximum kinetic energy of the electric ejected electron will be equal to the difference between HF and HFT, also called the work function. And the light beam consists of an integral number of light quanta called photons, and the energy of each photon is proportional to the frequency of the light, so E equals HF. E is the energy of the photon of the light. H is Planck's constant, which is 6.626 times 10 to the negative 34 joule per second, and F is the frequency of light, and once we know the frequency, we can find the wavelength according to the equation C equals F lambda. Uh, so, waves with higher frequency have shorter wavelengths and higher energy, and waves with lower frequency have longer wavelength and lower energy. And wavelengths are commonly measured in nanometers and angstroms, so 10 to the negative 9th meter and 10 to the negative 10th. So if the frequency of a photon of light incident on a metal is at the threshold frequency for the metal, then the electron barely escapes. But if it's above the threshold, then the photon will have more than enough energy to eject a single electron and the excess will be converted to kinetic energy in the ejected electron. So the maximum kinetic energy of the ejected electron with the formula K max equals HF minus W, where work is the... Well, W is the work function of the metal in question, and the work function is the minimum energy required to eject an electron, and it's related to the threshold frequency of that metal by W equals HFT, um, or F sub T, which we said earlier uh, is the threshold frequency. Yeah, okay. Uh, so this solves for the maximum kinetic energy of the electron rather than the exact, because the actual energy can be anywhere between... Uh, 0 and k max, depending on the specific subatomic interactions between the photon and the metal atom. So k sub max is only achieved when all possible energy from the photon is transferred to the ejected electron. And the photoelectric effect is a strong support for the particle theory of light, which states that light is not a continuous wave, but acts as discrete bundles of energy called photons. So then we'll move on to the absorption and emission of light. So uh, if a photon so, okay, so the Bohr model states that electron energy levels are stable and discrete, corresponding to specific orbits. An electron can jump from a lower energy to a higher energy orbit by absorbing a photon of light of precisely the right frequency to match the energy difference between the orbits. If a photon does not carry enough energy, then the electron cannot jump to a higher level. And when an electron falls from a higher energy level to a lower energy level, a photon of light is emitted with an energy equal to the energy difference between the two orbits. So these processes of atomic absorption and emission um, are described. Uh, and 
In organic chemistry, we use infrared spectroscopy to determine chemical structure because different bonds will absorb different wavelengths of light. And UV-vis spectroscopy takes this one step further, looking at the absorption of light in the visible and UV range. Uh, absorption spectra can be represented as a color bar with peak areas of absorption represented by black lines. It can also be shown as a graph with the absolute absorption as a function of wavelength. And changes in molecular structure can cause shifts in the absorption patterns of a substance. Um, like having conjugated double bonds or aromatic ring systems, which permits the absorption of light from photons in the visible range. Uh, another phenomenon is fluorescence. So if one excites a fluorescent substance uh, with UV radiation, it will begin to glow with visible light. And photons of UV light have relatively high frequencies and short wavelengths. So after being excited to a higher energy state by UV radiation, the electron in the fluorescent substance will return to its original state in two or more steps. And each step involves less energy. So at each step, a photon is emitted with a lower frequency or lower or longer wavelength from the absorbed UV photon, and if the wavelength of this emitted photon is within the visible range, it will be seen as a light of a particular color corresponding to that wavelength. Then we can talk about nuclear binding energy and mass defect. So energy that's stored in the nucleus can be emitted under specific circumstances. Uh, the mass of the nucleus could be assumed as simply the sum of the masses of all the protons and neutrons within it. The actual mass of every nucleus other than hydrogen is slightly smaller, so this is called the mass defect. Um, so the equivalence of matter and energy is equal to E equals mc squared. E is energy, m is mass, mc is the speed of light. The mass defect is a result of matter that has been converted to energy, and because of the large exponent on the speed of light, which is squared, a very small amount of mass will yield a huge amount of energy. When protons and neutrons or nucleons come together to form the nucleus, they're attracted by the strong nuclear force, which is strong enough to more than compensate for the repulsive electromagnetic force between the protons. And even if it's the strongest of the four fundamental forces, it only acts over extremely short distances. And the nucleons have to get very close together in order for the strong nuclear force to hold them together, and the bonded system is at a lower energy level than the unbonded constituents. And this difference must be radiated away in the form of heat, light, or other electromagnetic radiation before the mass defect becomes apparent. And this energy, called binding energy, allows the nucleons to bind together in the nucleus. And given the strength of the strong nuclear force, the amount of mass that's transformed into the dissipated energy will be a measurable fraction of the initial total mass. And the binding energy per nucleon peaks at the element iron, which implies that iron has the most stable nucleus. And intermediate-sized nuclei are more stable than very large or very small. Okay. The weak nuclear force also contributes to the stability of the nucleus, but it's about a millionth as strong as the strong nuclear force. Uh, and the strong and weak nuclear forces constitute two of the four fundamental forces of nature, and the other two are electrostatic forces and gravitation. Uh, next, we'll go over nuclear reactions. So... Fusion, fission, radioactive, de radioactive decay, they involve either combining or splitting the nuclei of atoms, and because the binding energy per nucleon is greatest for intermediate-sized atoms, when small atoms combine or large atoms split, a great amount of energy is released. So isotopic notation is uh, where elements are preceded by their atomic number as a subscript and mass number as a superscript. The atomic number Z corresponds to the number of protons in the nucleus, and the mass number A corresponds to the number of protons plus neutrons. And it's important to mass the number of nucleons on both sides by balancing the atomic numbers and the mass numbers. So fusion occurs when small nuclei combine to form a larger nucleus. Uh, let's go to the next. Oops, sorry. My pages are stuck together. Uh, fission is a process by which 
A large nucleus splits into smaller nuclei and spontaneous fission really occurs, but through the absorption of a low energy neutron, fission can be induced in certain nuclei. So uh, fission reactions that release more neutrons because these other neutrons uh, will cause a chain reaction in which other nearby atoms can undergo fission, which releases more neutrons and continuing the chain reaction. And these can power like nuclear plants. Then we have radioactive decay, which is a naturally occurring spontaneous decay of certain nuclei accompanied by the emission of specific particles. So you should be able to answer three types of these problems. The integer arithmetic of particle and isotope species, radioactive half-life problems, and the use of exponential decay curves indicate constants. So if X and Y are nuclear isotopes, when the parent nucleus X undergoes nuclear decay to form daughter nucleus Y, the balanced reaction is AZX yields A apostrophe Z apostrophe Y plus emitted decay particle. And when you balance nuclear reactions, the sum of the atomic numbers must be the same on both sides, and the sum of the mass numbers have to be the same on both sides as well. Alpha decay is the emission of an alpha particle, which is a 4,2-He nucleus that consists of two protons, two neutrons, and zero electrons. The alpha particle is very massive compared to a beta particle and has double the charge, and they interact with matter very easily so they don't penetrate shielding very extensively. The emission of an alpha particle means that the atomic number of the daughter nucleus will be two less than that of the parent nucleus and the mass number will be four less. So the balanced equation is going to be AZX yields A minus four, Z minus two Y plus four, two alpha. Beta decay is the, oh, did I already say this? The alpha particles don't have any electrons. They have a charge of plus two. Um, so beta decay is the emission of a beta particle, which is an electron, and it's given the symbol electron like E minus or beta minus. Electrons don't reside in the nucleus, but they're emitted by the nucleus when a neutron decays into a proton, a beta particle, and an antineutrino, so a little V with a line over it. Because an electron is singly charged and 1836 times lighter than a proton, the beta radiation is more penetrating than alpha radiation, and in some cases of induced decay or positron emission, a positron is released, which has the mass of an electron but carries a positive charge, and it's given the symbol E plus or beta plus. A neutrino, or little like V or nu symbol, is emitted in positron decay as well. And neutrinos and antineutrinos are not tested on the MCAT, so we don't really need to talk about it anymore. During beta decay, beta minus decay, a neutron is converted into a proton, and the beta minus particle, Z equals negative 1, A equals 0, is emitted. So the atomic number of the daughter nucleus will be 1 higher than that of the parent nucleus, and the mass number won't change. So the balanced equation is AZX yields AZ plus 1, Y plus beta minus. And during beta positive decay, uh, it's basically the opposite. A proton is converted into a neutron and a beta plus particle, Z equals plus one, A equals zero is emitted. So the atomic number will be the one lower than that of the period nucleus and the mass number won't change. So it's AZX yields AZ minus one Y plus beta plus. Gamma decay is the emission of gamma rays, which are high energy, high frequency photons. They have no charge and just lower the energy of the parent nucleus without changing the mass number or the atomic number. And the high energy state of the parent nucleus may be represented by an asterisk. So AZX asterisk yields AZX plus gamma. And then there's electron capture. So it's a rare process that is perhaps best thought of as the reverse of beta minus decay. It's AZX plus electron minus yields AZ minus one Y. Um, basically, the certain unstable radionuclides are capable of capturing an inner electron that combines with a proton to form a neutron, which releases a neutrino while releasing a neutrino. And the atomic number is now one less, but the mass number remains the same. And then half-life of the sample, T1 half, uh, is a sample, is the time that it takes for a sample, half of a sample decay, and each subsequent half-life, one half of the remaining sample decay, so that the remaining amount asymptotic, asymptotically approaches, asymptotically approaches zero. 
I am really struggling today. I'm so sorry, everybody. Uh, everybody, <laughs> as if it's not just me. Um, so N is the number of radioactive nuclei that have not yet decayed in a sample, and the rate at which the nuclei decay, delta N over delta T, is proportional to the number that remain N. So the equation delta N over delta E equals negative lambda N, where N, where lambda is known as the decay constant. Uh, basically, the solution of this tells us how the number of radioactive nuclei changes with time, and this is known as exponential decay. So N equals N naught, E to the negative lambda T, where N naught is the number of undecayed nuclei at time T equals zero, and the decay constant is related to the half-life by lambda equals LM2 over T one-half equals 0 0.693 over T one-half. And a typical exponential decay curve, you know what that looks like. Okay, that was luckily shorter. Uh, we'll go over our concept summary. So the photoelectric effect is the ejection of an electron from the surface of a metal in response to light. The threshold frequency is the minimum light frequency necessary to eject an electron from a given metal. The work function is the minimum energy necessary to eject an electron from a given metal. Its value depends on the metal used and can be calculated by multiplying the threshold frequency by Planck's constant. And the greater the energy of the incident photon above the work function, the more kinetic energy the ejected electron can possess. The ejected electrons create a current, and the magnitude of this current is proportional to the intensity of the incident beam of light. The Bohr model of the atom states that electron energy levels are stable and discrete, co corresponding to specific orbits. An electron can jump from a lower energy to a higher energy orbit by absorbing a photon of light of the same frequency as the energy difference between the orbits. When an electron falls from a higher energy to a lower energy orbit, it emits a photon of light of the same frequency as the energy difference between the orbits. Absorption spectrum may be impacted by small changes in molecular structure, and fluorescence occurs when a species absorbs high-frequency light and then returns to its ground state in multiple steps. Each step has less energy than the absorbed light and is within the visible range of the electromagnetic spectrum. Nuclear binding energy is the amount of energy that is released when nucleons, protons, and neutrons bind together. So the more binding energy per nucleon is released, the more stable the nucleus. And the four fundamental forces of nature are the strong and weak nuclear force, which contribute to the stability of the nucleus, electrostatic forces, and gravitation. The mass defect is the difference between the mass of the unbonded nucleons and the mass of the bonded nucleons within the nucleus. The unbonded have more energy and therefore more mass than the bonded constituents. The mass defect is the amount of mass converted to energy during nuclear fusion. Fusion occurs when small nuclei combine into larger nuclei. Fission occurs when a large nucleus splits into a smaller nuclei. Energy is released in both because nuclei is formed in both processes are more stable than the starting nuclei. Radioactive decay is the loss of small particles from the nucleus, so alpha decay is the emission of an alpha particle, alpha 4,2 alpha, 4,2 helium, which is a helium nucleus with a positive 2 charge. Beta negative decay is the decay of a neutron into a proton with emission of an electron, E minus or beta minus, and an antineutrino, which is nu with a horizontal line over it. Beta positive decay, also called positron emission, is the decay of a proton into a neutron with emission of a positron, E plus, or beta plus, and a neutrino, which is just a little nu symbol. And then gamma decay is the emission of a gamma ray, which converts a high-energy nucleus into more stable nucleus, and electron capture is the absorption of an electron from the inner shell that combines with a proton in the nucleus to form a neutron. Half-life is the amount of time required for half of a sample of radioactive nuclei to decay, and in exponential decay, the rate at which radioactive nuclei decay is proportional to the number of nuclei that remain. Yeesh! Okay, that was definitely shorter, uh, and we're gonna just keep trucking into the math chapter, and I think it the rest of these topics don't seem like they're as high yield. If I just check really quickly in these next couple, uh, there's like one, the basic science research is high yield, and then 
charts, graphs, and tables. So in the next couple of chapters, we still have some stuff to listen out for. So bye-bye. See you there.